Welcome to the next episode of Winning with Connection. This is Donna Honeycutt, and today we're going to talk to Jeff Shapiro, a partner at Cohen Resnick, who works with defense businesses, large and small, and has seen the range of all of the challenges faced at each stage of growth. And the wonderful thing about Jeff is he is willing to make his wisdom available to all of us without having to become clients right away. Uh, so really, you're going to have the opportunity to hear from someone who's kind of a master class practitioner of both pricing and DCA compliant accounting and systems and all, all of the stuff that uh, no one really thinks about when they think about how much fun it would be to set up a company. But as you all know, the devil is in the details. So Jeff is here to clear that up for us. Jeff, you have a particularly interesting professional history, and I'd love to share it with the listening audience because I think it'll give them an idea of why you have such a great 360-degree view of all of these issues. That's right. Well, thank you, Donna. I appreciate the great introduction. Yeah, I, you know, just like many uh, professionals who end up in government contracting, you know, I, I, I fell into this by accident. When I graduated university, I started with Arthur Anderson auditing financial statements of commercial companies. And well, not, not too much later, uh, Enron happened. And I was like, oh boy, I'm a young guy in my young 20s saying, what do I do now with my career? Hmm, let me find something that'll make things a little more uh, stable for me. So what did I do? I, I, I applied to work for the federal government. So about a year later after Enron happened, I went to work for the CIA. Yes, I can say it out loud. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> really quickly in one small bullet yes. point. Oh, for no those problem. that don't have a memory of Enron, please explain what Enron was and how oh, it yeah, affected sorry. the labor market for accountants. Yeah, wow. Uh, Enron really uh, turned things on, on, on its head. Uh, you know, the long story short on that, as some may or may not know, many years later, it was determined uh, in, in a court of law that Anderson was not uh, liable, but as many people who may be aware who are listening to this podcast that, well, Anderson was long gone by then. The blame had already been placed by the court of public opinion, and Anderson essentially had to go away just because we lost so much reputation with Stan, uh, stature at, at that point. So, yeah, so unfortunately, uh, Anderson pretty much folded within six months of, of that really coming out just because, you know, in the business of public accounting, reputation really is, is paramount. Excellent. And it's probably a study in, in what you don't want your company to appear in the headlines as the subject of even yes. things legally and appropriately. Yeah, I mean, I often will talk to my clients about, you know, things that they're doing, especially in government contracting. You know, does this pass the Washington Post test? And let me know. I understand it firsthand. So <laughs> if you get caught doing something that's really bad. You know, whether or not you're actually liable or really meant it, whatever it may be, you know, if this came out, what do, what do you think would happen to your company? And yeah, I point to that experience. So, so would you say that a company and, and maybe this changes based on how large or small the company is? Do you think that, um, a company needs to step back from kind of pushing the envelope? I mean, to what degree would you encourage a small defense company to push the envelope versus be more honest and more transparent than the law requires so that you never get caught up in these poor optics? Yeah, I, I'm always back practicality, Donna. You're going to have to balance 
getting everything right, being everything compliant, but at the same time being practical and equitable. You know, as long as you're not screwing over the government, pardon the uh, frank assessment, uh, you're probably going to be okay. So if you happen to slip in a $5 meal at McDonald's that wasn't occurred during travel and you want to charge it against the business and charge it, hide it somewhere in, a, in what looks to be an allowable account, you're probably going to be fine. And then it's up to your ethical values on how that's, how that's going to work. So it's a balance. You know, I'm all about doing things ethically right. And I think all that, you know, comes back around in, in, in this karma involved there. But ultimately, you know, as long as the big stuff is done right, the intention is to do the right thing, and it's it, it is clearly shown by the work that you're doing and how you're billing for it, and you're not looking to cheat the system or overbill when you're not supposed to, you're going to be just fine. Wonderful. And so you're telling us a great story, and I interrupted you for that detail. Oh, please, no worries. <laughs> so relevant. But so you find yourself now working for the CIA. Yeah. So uh, go going to work for CIA. They said, "Hey, Jeff, you know, you, you're a CPA. You got a great background. How would you like to do contract auditing?" I'm like, "What's that?" <laughs> so, so I quickly learned all about federal federal acquisition regulation, FAR, cost accounting standards, you name it. At CIA, uh, most people probably don't realize that they have their own contract auditing division that is totally separate from the Defense Contract Audit Agency solely due to the fact of uh, classification issues. Uh, you, know, you know, I know that certain parts of DCA does its own classified contracts. However, there was never agreement between DOD and CIA to do those CIA contracts due to the the special compartment and information for, for many contracts within the agency. So therefore it has its own mini, call it DCA, mini, uh, contract audit division where it's a, you know, it's a select group of folks who need to learn how to do anything and everything. You know, DCA, a, a organization of many thousands of people to do every kind of audit. Well, the CA had to put it this way, a much smaller group of individuals had to learn how to do it. So once you, once I got in there, it was trial by fire, had to learn any, anything, everything, post and pre and post award contract audits, uh, business system audits, incurred cost audits, you name it, proposal audits, forward pricing audits. It was incredible the, the amount of work that had to be done. The opportunity for me to grow and to understand the federal procurement cycle was really unique there. So I did that for a couple of years. I even sat on the source selection evaluation boards as cost evaluation chair. So really, truly a full experience. And then I got so senior there, uh, I was able to then get embedded with contracting officers and then advise them on how to write RFPs and writing up those section L's on what information should you be asking for uh, when sending out an RFP in order to make a determination that uh, about the price being realistic and reasonable, and then doing audits on uh, on the on the fly. I mean, I had to do audits within a week uh, many times. You know, negotiations were going really super fast. Contracting officers issuing task orders, and to support the mission, we had to work at the speed of light to get these contracts out the door. So, really, you know, learning how to risk assess, understand what the crux of the program was about and understanding, all right, 
if we're going to negotiate this next week, what do we really need to understand so that the contracting officer is going to feel comfortable doing so? So it was a great opportunity. Got to do all that for a number of years. I even got a chance to be a contracting officer's representative when I moved out of contract audit for a couple of years to do more resource management type of activities. So got to supervise contractors from the technical standpoint. I even got to run my own uh, source selection from a technical standpoint. So that was a neat perspective. So yeah, so my experience at the agency really was great. I ended up being there for eight and a half years. So in, all, in that time frame, understanding the procurement within the government really was crucial to my to my personal growth. And I really like that in, in working with you. Um, you have a wonderful ability to convey how pricing and pricing narrative um, and the promises made and the representations made with respect to building up a price, um, how those can be an advantage in the proposal process and how they can integrate with all of the other things that you mentioned. I mean, how do I speak about pricing to the source selection committee? How do I speak about pricing to a government price analyst? How do I speak about pricing to a government price analyst that maybe is covering for the usual price analyst that, you know, is on TDY and maybe, <laughs> you know, doesn't look at a spreadsheet that instantly it tells them the story. Um, so tell us a little bit more about that. I mean, how can we, weaponize, for lack of a better word, our pricing to help us win proposals above and beyond just providing low prices? Yeah, sure. Uh, so a couple of different things on this topic. First of all, a lot of pricing analysts lean very heavily on the independent government cost estimate uh, and say, hey, you know, I'm going to pick up this independent cost estimate and compare it to what the contractor does. And when the cost estimate is lower than what the contractor did, they're very quick to say, oh, the, the contractor's unreasonable. And that's not necessarily always the case. You know, that being said, I, you know, contractors had that transparency into, into knowing that I'm sure all contractors would want to bid at or below that independent cost estimate. But little do they know, uh, the government, you know, many people who do these price estimates haven't been in the business of running a business. Uh, in government contracting uh, or, or any business. And sometimes they'll make mistakes. Sometimes they may not make certain considerations or they read up and say, oh, the multiples that should be applied and this kind of contract and this, you know, for this type of work should be X. But realistically, you know, because the work needs to be done at the gov- at the contractor's facility versus the government facility, there's a, there's a lot more cost to it. So I think the answer to part of your question, Donna, is it's a lot about transparency into your estimating process, explaining how did you come up with this pricing? I mean, especially in a competitive environment, you know, the incentive really is already on the contractor to provide a fair and reasonable price that is indeed competitive. I mean, you're not going to propose a price that you think won't win. I mean, you're always going to propose something that's that's competitive, that, you know, you know what your competitors are likely to come in at. But, you know, so you have the incentive to say, all right, listen, what do I need to do? What multiple do I need to propose at in order to get my price uh, competitive? So you go through the iterations of saying, all right, how do I structure my business? How do I structure a certain segment? Who do I propose on this effort to make this both profitable and price competitive against my competitors? And so how to do that is say what you're doing. Say, listen, I'm taking industry information that I have publicly available, whether it's publicly available survey data, what am I paying people on other contracts that are for similar type efforts? 
look, this is who I'm already paying and this is what they've already accepted. So I know this is a market and therefore I know I can pay these people this amount. And in terms of managing your indirect rates, well, again, it's all about setting budgets, understanding how you worked against those budgets and how did you execute against those budgets. And historically, have you come in under budget? Have you come, have you gone over budget? And, and if you have, what have you done to course correct? Uh, so telling that story, you know, without going into the nitty gritty details about, you know, that it's a sunny day and it's 85 degrees out, but you still want to go through the iteration saying, listen, we do variance analysis. We, we monitor our indirect rates on a regular basis to make sure that we're staying lean and mean and therefore focus on delivering on the mission in a cost-effective manner. Nice. So let's take a step back for, yeah, for yeah, no the listeners that are joining us and, and are more at the beginning stages of doing this. And let's say we're looking at someone who has come out of government or come out of the military and is interested, has a great deal of subject matter expertise and wants to you know, start a firm and they want to make sure that they're going to be compliant with GCAA standards. How do they start? What kind of accounting system do they get? What kind of education should they have before they start signing their name to things? Yeah. Wow. Loaded question there. And I know I assume you did that on purpose. So there's many different <laughs> things I think about for those looking to be entrepreneurial. And I love that. I, and by the way, I love the story of the Tampa Bay Laundry, the lady I listened to on a previous podcast. She knew what she did. She knew what she did well and said, listen, I can do this and figured it out. And I don't think that's dissimilar from anyone else who's looking to start on their own. You know, find what you do well. Who are you connected with? And once you figure that out, everything else will follow. So you know, you, you asked about systems and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself and where you want to go with this conversation. But when you're proposing to the government, you don't instantly need to be what, quote unquote, DCA compliant. And when we talk about DCA compliance, I'm talking about having the right systems, you know, making sure you segregate out unallowable costs and you know, doing equitable allocations of costs among pools, all this kind of craziness that, you know, I make a living off of. And that's great. But I'm here to tell you that you could easily work for the government without having to work, worry about so much about that. So I'm talking about is you can do things in where you can price things commercially. So what does that mean? If you can start selling to someone outside the government for a while first, you know, you got a neighbor who's running a business that needs cybersecurity efforts. Uh, you know, maybe you could build a program that that company could use. Once you establish that you can sell your product or your service out to a non-government customer, you've established that your good or service is commercial and you can turn back to the government. Hey, look, you looks like you need something similar. I can sell you this at the same price I offer this commercially. So something to keep in mind. Also, that being said, you know, there's other opportunities, uh, OTAs, other transaction authorities for those who are involved, like R&D efforts, you know, getting yourselves in consortiums. And again, I know this could be a topic of a whole nother, another uh, podcast for you, Donna, but you know, there's a huge leaning on, 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 on rapid acquisition measures by the government, particularly within DOD. So using, you know, incentivizing these non-traditional uh, defense contractors who are not quote unquote DCA compliant and have these unusual innovative solutions that the government wants to take advantage of. They can use this other transaction authority, and I'll, I'll cut that short 
just for uh, brevity purposes. And there's also what's called Small Business Innovation Research Funds, uh, SBIR. That's another program for you to look into, especially if you're into innovation R&D, creating something new and different, not really sure where it's going to go. But, you know, the government will will hand you like $10,000, $50,000 if you just have an idea, write up a white paper that says, hey, listen, here's what I think you can do with blockchain to – uh, protect our weapon, weapon systems. I don't know. There's so many different ideas out there. If you go to sbir.gov website, there's tons and tons of uh, requests for studies out there that the opportunities are endless. And you, again, for the initial phase of SBIR, you don't yet have to be DCA compliant, but this is one way you can bankroll yourself, get yourself some cash so you can move up to the next level. So, now I can get on to your question, Donna, about accounting systems and how can you be DCA compliant. So I'm here to tell you that your software is not going to be your solution to having an adequate accounting system. Yes, there are you know, a lot of software packages out there that advertise themselves as DCA compliant. But let me tell you, you can't have an adequate system without having the adequate processes in place in order to make it an adequate system. And the system is really the, the, the software plus your processes Bingo. plus who's involved in doing it. So the system is really an ecosystem of how you manage your funds and your pricing and your revenue and your expenditures. It, it's not just that software. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you could have an approved accounting system that's based out of Excel. I mean, I don't recommend it, but you could. Uh, you know, people who, you know, who first start that business are like, all right, I'm just going to use QuickBooks. You know what? I'm here to tell you, you can make it work. Again, you know, is it a long-term solution? No. If you're planning to become a 50 million or more business, I do not recommend QuickBooks for the long term. But if you're going to be a singleton with maybe a handful of employees, yeah, you can make it work. You can create your chart of accounts and in the right way. Here, I'll tell you my quick story. When I was with the agency, as you can may imagine, we, We'd have to audit some unusual characters and people in unusual places and who knows what. I was essentially asked to run out to a place in the middle of Vienna here in the D.C. area. Hey, you know, go go visit these guys. Make sure they have an, account, an adequate accounting system. I'm like, sure. So I called the guy up. And he's like, sure, come on over. You know, this is my address. So I'm like, all right, great. And so I figured some small office park and go visit this guy and help and see what's going on, see if he's got a, a system that's capable of uh, recording uh, costs under a reimbursable contract. Well, I went to the address. It was a guy's home in the middle of the neighborhood. I was like, what is going on here? So literally in this guy's basement, this guy was running a couple person company. For some reason, the agency wanted to give him a reimbursable contract. Whether that was right or not, that's beyond the scope of this discussion. But we worked together. And again, yeah, this is, you know, I, I you know, to go back to my uh, career involvement, you know, at the agency, we were all about collaboration and working with the contractor to make it work. You know, I, we were not an, uh, a gotcha type of audit agency. And that was not our mission. Our mission was to, yes, return missions. Uh, return dollars to mission, but it was also helping make it work. I mean, without these contractors, the agency wasn't going to be able to work as as effectively and amazing, doing the amazing things that it could do. So we were looking to be collaborative and not conf- not confrontational. So yeah, so I worked with this company, you know, guy <laughs> running a small company, 
and helped him configure his QuickBooks, his chart of accounts, so that he represent a simple, simplified rate pool, exclude the unallowable costs that didn't belong in, in, in a claim, and made things work. So I'm here to tell you, keep it as simple as possible. Keep it practical. What works for your business? You can't afford the big names system uh, software? Fine. Don't, don't do it. But let me tell you that the bigger you get, the more complex it gets, and you're going to start losing your efficiency, and your bookkeeper is going to get very <laughs> upset that they're going to have to do lots of manual processes in order for you to, to, to remain compliant. So hopefully uh, uh, that story puts it a bit in perspective for you, Donna. But if you – so, you know, we – First of all, I have a, a story very similar to the one that you described. When Lauren and I really started getting active running the firm in 2006, and um, I was PCS back here to Tampa, um, the firm was based in my living room, and we needed a bank account. And uh, we had a local bank come in. We wanted to do business with local banks to just talk about setting up a business account. And they looked around and they were kind of horrified. They, <laughs> you know, they knew that we had something like, you know, 20 employees. And then they saw me sort of sitting around my dining room table and uh, they started making all sorts of caveats like, well, we're really going to have to run this through the Patriot Act, you know, and all the the all the uh, anti-terrorist control laws to make sure that what you're doing here isn't money laundering. Yeah, yeah, they, yep, yep. they found it very hard to believe that, you know, we were doing that sort of basement startup um, kind of thing. And then um, so that, that absolutely happened to us. Fortunately, then we found a bank that was just really eager to get some young, growing, hungry businesses. But we also managed to operate on QuickBooks for many, many years. So as long as we were doing commercial pricing, QuickBooks worked for us. I found that it started getting really complex when we needed to. We were big enough where we needed to integrate all of our systems, our payroll system, our accounting system, and when we needed to be ready to do cost plus. So that was the point at which it really didn't make sense to invest in uh, some of the more sophisticated software. And at that point, you've got Jameis, you've got Dell Tech, you've got Uninet. Um, do you have any preferences there? It all depends. Uh, and, you know, there's more and there's more products than just them. Uh, it, it's one of those things where you have to try it before you buy it. You know, just like test driving a car. You need each of these. Those systems have a plus and have a minus. Some are more expensive than others. And, you know, sometimes you pay for what you get and, you know, and whether or not that premium, you know, between the, the Mercedes versus the Hyundai, you know, is it worth it for your business? And is it that, you know, the features that that may have, is that really necessary? So what what do you really need? So whether it's program management, whether it's just simple, I need to uh, monitor my indirect rates. I want to monitor it by project. I want to segment my business by consulting versus manufacturing or engineering or whatever it may be. There's so many different ways you want to do it. And you have to run these kind of scenarios by each of these companies or by someone who sells the, those systems and say, hey, listen, if I'm going to do this, what would it look like? You know, uh, what what is your timekeeping look like? You know, very important. If you're working on cost plus contracts, the most important system that you have on a, or at least that, I guess, module you have as part of these systems is timekeeping. Uh, and so making sure, you know, if you, do you have something that's homegrown or are you willing to switch over to uh, another timekeeping system? So asking all these important questions and, and seeing how it runs, going through the 
the exercise. I mean, you'll find the people that can work in all these systems, no problem. It's still all about you, you know, Donna, you know, as a, a, as an owner of the business, how can I make the best decisions about pricing, about making sure that I feel, you know, calm at night that, you know, I'm not claiming any unallowable costs on contracts, those kinds of things. And so what do you need in order to run the business is what, what that's all about. And yes, cost is, cost is definitely a factor, but it's also, I, I mean, I know in your instance, I know you guys were struggling to choose between two and I, between multiple systems. And I think you guys did something very similar. Yeah, we did. And, and we're pleased. And it really did boil down to, in my view, I think it's a function that integrates how much does your staff understand about accounting? You know, how off the shelf do you want to be with your accounting and what types of pricing are you trying to choose and how much do you want to fit other modular pieces into it? So there are systems, for example, that are designed by accountants and then adapted for the defense industry. And then there are systems that are designed by people coming out of the defense industry and then adapted for accountants. So a lot of that, you know, it boils down to, to the details. Yeah, absolutely. And then do, do you buy lots of stuff like materials? Like, are you building something? And can you monitor your, your work and process in the manufacturer side? Like certain systems are going to be better at that versus just monitoring subcontractors who are just providing you with hours. So, yeah, all these th- different things you, you need to weigh. And like we talked about before, you know, it's not just about the software. You're not going to be able to take it off the shelf, install it and call yourself compliant. It's going to be about the processes you implement, the people you integrate with that, the, the tone at the top, the control environment, so much that goes into it. And then you need to get a consultant to help you install it and start working with it. And there, I, I have found that there really is a range ranging from this is how it's done, right? There's sort of <laughs> kind of two different ways to do things. There's the this is how it's done here, standard practice. And a lot of people, I think, that are evangelists of that sometimes don't even know what flexibilities are allowed within the DCA. They just know how they were taught, and then they disseminate that. And there's a range that goes all the way to, hey, look at all these flexibilities within the FAR, within DCAA, and, you know, we can get as crazy as you want. It's going to be a ridiculous amount of work for you, and you better be compliant. You better be able to defend what you're doing. So on that range, you know, I have found as someone personally who has experience in finance, we were able to go – a little further away from the, like, this is how it's done. But what advice would would you give people about that? Like how, and I guess there's another question embedded in that, which is with DCA auditors, have you found them to across the board be as collaborative and interested in finding, you know, ways that are compliant with DCA that's not what they're used to seeing? Great question. And I'll try to apply an example here. So, it's going to highly depend on the auditors that you get assigned to you, right? Some are more flexible than others. Some take their experience. You know, you, you do it this way, and if you don't do it this way, it's non-compliant. And again, this is a much longer conversation that we're we're going to talk about. But let me, I'm here to tell you that the rules allow a lot of flexibility. So, so give you my story. You know, one of my clients runs a very large scale operation and uses an accounting uh, software that, let's put it this way, is not intended for government contracting like some of the names you gave earlier. And so they had to do a lot of offline manual processes in order to make it work and make them compliant. 
And DCA attempted, and I'm using, purposely using the word attempted, to audit them two different times. And once they saw this large-scale accounting system being used, they said, oh, that's not for government contracting. I can't, we can't do this. So, you know, they say they did, the, they walked through the processes, but ultimately they're like, no one knows. There's no unallowable cost in this chart of accounts. There's no way this is an acceptable accounting system. <laughs> and so they disclaimed their opinion and said, I can't audit this. You used the wrong system. Wow. <laughs> and, and it's just unbelievable. It just, I just hurt my head. So when this company hired us to do the audit, we said, okay. You're not running, you know, one of these usual systems. That's fine. What do you do instead? Walk me through it. Yes, did it take a long time? Yes, are there a lot of manual process? And yes, it took a lot of reconciliations, lots of time. And, and you know, for a comp for a firm that if you were starting in government contracting, I would tell you not to do that. You know, don't buy a huge scale system that is not concentrated in government contracting. I get it. But for large companies that are large commercial companies that have multiple divisions or, di or global entities, yeah, you're not, you're probably not going to buy most of the stuff that's out there that's made just for government contractors. And again, that's another subject for another topic. But, but at the end of the day, what I'm telling you is, you can make anything work, right? So, so for DCA auditors, you know, when they weren't able to see through that, I can't talk for what they were thinking or doing or, but yes, they can get stuck in a rut, especially when you do things unorthodox. Maybe mm -hmm. is that a word? I'm sorry, but so, but you know, that's why if you know what you're doing is not typical, be, be upfront about it. Like, listen, this yeah. is how way that this is my business, you know, I'm not going to do run my business just to make you happy, right? So when I'm advising my clients, I'm going to tell them, listen, what you're choosing to do is a little bit different than normal, but I think you're okay, and here's how you prove it. So there's a little more homework that companies need to do when they're not doing things per the the normal, quote-unquote, normal practices. And so you need to just be outward about that and say, hey, listen, this is what we do, and this is why we do it. I mean, and it, it needs to be a business reason, right? Yes. It can't be like because yes. we want to obfuscate. <laughs> yeah. that's a very that's a very fair fair point. Yes, uh, I, I am looking to yes, <laughs> I'm tr looking to trick you. No, that, that that's that that is not what I'm getting at. What I'm trying to get at is sometimes reporting is different. You know, the, the metrics uh, that I measure profitability. The only way I can get to where I want to be is to have it done this way. But later here, let me explain to you why the costs that are allocated within this division to this contract are indeed fair and reasonable, and you got to walk them through it. So, yes, so it takes a little more homework and takes someone with a little more knowledge of how far and, if necessary, cost accounting standards work to, to prove out that, hey, we're not looking to cheat you. This is how it works. So, so yeah, so... You know, you you could always look at the the auditor's rule book, uh, or at least in the DCA's uh, standpoint, look at the, what's called the CAM, the Contract Audit Manual. That tells you everything. So if you're going to yeah. go through a price proposal audit, it doesn't hurt for you to flip through that, and get an understanding what kinds of questions the auditors are likely to ask, and then you go to their audit programs, which are posted on their website, saying, "All right, here are all the you know the 30 different things that they're going to go through in order to render an opinion whether or not." the costs that you proposed and your forward pricing rates are, are fair and reasonable. So 
again, you know, for those new to this, go through that process, understand what's going to be asked and, and take and, and, and be able to answer them. And if you're doing things a little bit unusual, yeah, you're going to have to spend a little bit more time and defending why you did what you did. And I think any reasonable auditor should be able to go with you on that. And if you don't find an auditor that goes with you, just you got to be ready to defend it to the contracting officer. Okay. And, and, and so, you know, a big takeaway here is, is on that spectrum of doing things sort of the really, really, really standard way, the way they teach you in DCA 101 versus, <laughs> you know, my business does this special type of thing that actually doesn't really work in that framework. And so we're going to change this one thing. You better make sure that it's worth it. You better make sure that it's yielding you efficiencies or business sense um, that that otherwise you would have to forego. And you have to understand that you're taking a risk in terms of kind of having a longer audit and having more explaining to do. And and again, you have to make sure that you're doing it for the right reasons and you're doing it correctly. Exactly. Exactly. You're probably building efficiencies. But look, I am saving you time and money because I built it the way that I'm most comfortable with. If I had to go back your way, I'd have to hire another FTE, two FTEs, you know, to just to do that. I don't want to run a report just to make you happy. I and I and you know, there's a polite way of saying that, of course. And I don't yeah. remember. I've, I've told you a couple of times, hey, tell the auditor to go pound sand, but you don't actually sound that said that. <laughs> But I would never tell just, an auditor to go pouncing them. <laughs> really nice to auditors, and nice to auditors, they, exactly. they get a sense that you're trying to block them, you're in trouble. Yes. Yeah. Yes. No. 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 All you need to do is say, "Hey, listen. Can you reiterate to me what the criteria is you're, you're looking to audit to?" And they'll come <laughs> back and say, "Here, this is what I'm trying to audit. This is my audit objective." You say, "Great. Here's here's why what I'm providing to you meets that objective." So. Again, walking them through that process as necessary. Like it's sometimes, you know, they get so stuck, especially those who were stuck like in a residential audit, meaning they are only auditing one large contractor for a number of years. When they start branching out to other smaller companies, they just get lost. They go, I, I don't get it. Why don't you have a value added GNA base? You have subcontractors. Like they automatically think because you have subcontractors cost that you have to have a value added base. And that's just not true, you know, for, for instance. So there's just so many things that, that a lot of auditors can easily get caught up on and you just have to be ready to come back and say, okay, I, I understand where you're coming from. However, you know, based on your objective, based on the criteria that you're auditing to, this is why I am complying. I like that. So, so let's run through the spectrum from simplest to most complex on the, on the DCA spectrum of pricing and the kind of pricing you might want to undertake to provide to the government and kind of the, the trade-offs and investments you have to make to do that. So at the beginning, we talked about the Cibra program. We talked about other transactional authority, and we talked about commercial prices, mm-hmm. which I, I, I don't know if I'm simplifying it too much, but basically if you sold this on the open market for a certain price, that is evidence of fair and reasonable pricing when you approach the government. The next step up from there and, and something that's woven into the FAR is TINA, Truth in Negotiations, right? And so at what point does an emerging, growing defense contractor need to think about TINA? Yeah, so the, the new FAR rules, and although it hasn't been finalized, but most agencies have passed class deviations on this, but essentially any contract action over $2 million is going to 
have a contracting officer asking you to certify to, to the cost and pricing, cost or pricing data that are submitted under procurement. And remember, this is not necessarily going to be the case when you're uh, proposing under a competitive environment. So you're, if you're in a large pool of uh, companies and you're proposing a cost, you know, the way you come up with those costs, yeah, I would recommend that you follow your accepted practices, but you have a bit more flexibility. But if you do win the contract and you need to make a modification to the costs, well, that's, that's going to like, or that's over $2 million. That's likely going to put you in this realm of needing to submit a, uh, a certified cost of pricing data certificate, which says that you're complying with the, with the requirements of, you know, what used to be called TINA, what we're all calling TINA is now called truthful negotiations, uh, or whatever it's called. See, I don't even know what I'm saying for, but we're also used to the truth in negotiations. I know it's the truth in negotiations. <laughs> exactly. That's what and, it was. And what it is, is in the way as a lay person, how I understand exactly. it is that if you are proposing a price that's customized to this opportunity and that is not based on your previous market sales, then at that point you better be able to prove all the different pieces that fed into the pricing that you've provided to the government. Exactly. So what, what that certificate essentially says that all the information and you, you're not necessarily supposed to certify to that data until literally when you, you've already come up to a negotiated amount with a contracting officer right about to sign the contract right before that, you sign the certification saying that all the data that you submitted was current, accurate and complete. So what does that mean? I use the most current data. I was as accurate as possible. And I gave you based on all the facts that were available at the time of this negotiations, I disclosed them to you. So, for instance, I, I, I think the easy an easy example is, say, uh, you do operations and maintenance on a base and, you know, you have to do lots of uh, uh, lawn cutting. So you're using gas that goes into these, uh, these lawn mowers and needs to mow it. Well, if the price of gas like crashed like a week before the negotiations, you probably need to disclose to the contracting officer this is a material uh, uh, cost that goes into the cost of the contract. So, hey, listen, I know I priced it with using this price, but now that the price of oil has crashed, uh, you know, we probably, I, I, I need to disclose to you that this happened and this is the, this, this is the cost impact. Um, you know, that may not be the totally best example because as we know, gas kind of goes up and down, but I just wanted to illustrate, you know, whether, whether it's that or a price of copper or, you know, it's easy to do in a manufacturer, but even, or just the labor market gets so tight or so loose for a certain thing, you know, which usually doesn't happen in, in a very short amount of time, but you need to materially disclose, or if you lose a huge piece of business, that's an even better example that causes your GNA rate to skyrocket, or you want a piece of huge business that causes your GNA to go down. Yeah, you need to disclose that so that you can negotiate a rate that is fair and reasonable and it will equitably allocate costs because your fee is going to be on a cost plus contract is going to be based on, on those facts. So, so yeah, so, so what it comes down to, you know, all companies, you know, as you grow, you need to come up with a standardized policy to do what's called a Tina sweep. Make sure you, you check all the things that would make that your contract materially change right before you do that negotiations. Hey, we're about to go talk to the contracting officer. Has anything happened that we need to disclose to the contracting officer? Can we go back and look at this and go and do that? And then you, you'll feel sure that at that point that you, you've done that. So, cause like if something happens the next day, you've covered yourself. I mean, you know, things do change. It's not meant to be a crystal ball. It's meant to, what did you do? What happened right now as of the day of the of negotiations? 
And then at what point do you become subject to CAS? So subject to CAS. So so we've got a great illustration on our website that that shows it. But in in a nutshell, you first have to start worrying about CAS when you start incurring contracts over seven and a half million dollars. When you start having a, a, a seven and a half million dollar contract, that's when you have to start worrying about cost accounting standards and you're not a small business. So I should definitely make that point very clear. Someone like you, Donna, who I know is looking to extend your small business uh, designation as long as possible. And many people listening to this podcast, when you have that designation as, as small business, there's lots of exemptions and that is one of them. So before you get to that seven and a half million, you may get a contract action of seven and a half million or more. But you say, hey, oh, nope, sorry, I'm still a small business, so therefore uh, CAS will not apply. So once you're no longer a small business and no of the other exceptions apply, and again, <clears throat> there's about 12 different uh, exceptions uh, for CAS, then you got to start thinking about, oh, what does this mean for me? And so when you hit $7.5 million, you're going to be subject to modify cost accounting standards. You know, I'll make this as brief as possible, but essentially it necessitates that you account, estimate, and bill for costs in the same manner across the board. You can't estimate in more detail than what you end up billing on. If anything, you should do it the other way around. And you have to account for costs in the same manner that you say you're going to do. So if you say that business development costs for modifications are going to be always be a direct cost, then you always have to charge it as a direct cost you know, no matter what. But once you start selling more than $50 million, you you have contracts worth more than $50 million, you're going to be subject to full cost accounting standards. Again, then you have to, there are more cost accounting standards that you'll have to abide by um, to include pensions and insurance in standard costing if that applied to you. So there's lots more that, that have to apply. And again, this is only for new contracts. So if you've already been on contract for three years, you have two more years left on contract, you've already passed the milestone in which you become, you know, cast covered. Well, you don't go backwards on that, on that so, contract. Go so ahead, it's triggered by the intersection of the size of the company yep. and the size of the particular contract that you're looking at. Exactly. Exactly. So, so this all being said, you know, let me make sure I put this in large type with uh, via my voice like don't think you're going to be complying with cost and counting standards overnight be ready for it forecast out when is this going to happen what do i need to do before i get there so don't let this be a surprise don't let this your contracting officer say we just lost our small business designation at the beginning of the year now i think this is going to put us above can I sign and say that we are following cost accounting standards? Yeah. Don't let that be a surprise. Be ready for it. Take your time and do what you need to do in order to be compliant. So that being said, I don't want to scare you too much, especially on the modified side. If you're following FAR, especially Part 31 uh, cost principles, you're most likely going to be fine. So I don't want to scare you too much, but especially when you get to the full Cast disclosure and having to do disclosure statement, which you need to submit within 60 days of being cast covered. Yeah, you, that is not an overnight process. It involves multiple stakeholders, not just in finance. It includes HR, includes purchasing, a whole bunch of different departments. Like, please make sure you invest the time to be ready for that well before you get to that point. Can we talk about GNA and overhead and what kind of norms? Oh boy. 
<laughs> both auditors and government pricing analysts are looking for both when they're reviewing your system to see if, if anything looks off and also when they're reviewing your proposal. Yeah, sure. Um, so overhead and GNA, um, it means different things to different people. You know, here, uh, you know, I would say that your overhead costs should cover the indirect costs for your direct employees to work on multiple contracts. So where they're sitting, so the facilities, the IT related costs, maybe even the cost of, you know, getting them in that seat. So maybe some recruiting costs. And then GNA, you know, I always tell people that work with me that usually is uh, all the costs that benefit the running of your whole entire business. So that being said, you know, those are not regulations. Those are not specifically called out in the FAR as to how you account for it. So as I talked about earlier, you need to explain to the the pricing analyst, the contracting officer, what overhead and GNA means to you, or if you call it something different, what's in that pool, you know, what types of costs are in the pool and what is the basis by which those costs are allocated and why is that an equitable allocation of your costs? So, you know, a lot of people, a lot of my clients ask me, Ooh, my overhead rate is X percent. How's that compared to someone else? I'd be like, I can tell you that, but it really doesn't matter because someone else may not include the same type of cost that you do in your overhead. They may put bonuses in fringe instead of overhead, or they might put bonuses in GNA only. And there's no right answer because it's all about what is equitable and what is right for your firm. So when a price analyst is going to look at indirect costs at overhead and GNA, a good price analyst is going to have look at things from more of a wrap rate perspective. When you take all of your indirect costs, you know, for each hundred dollars of labor, how much am I going to pay in indirect costs? For each $100 in subcontract costs, how much in indirect costs am I going to pay, whether it's GNA or material handling? And at the end of the day, you know, why is that fair and reasonable? So a price analyst, you know, really should not be lining up, you know, you know, their cost estimate that assumed 50% overhead against the uh, uh, contractor's proposal that says 60% and say, oh, that's 10% way too much. You, you know, negotiate that out. That's not fair because then they go down and see GNA is a lot less <laughs> compared to the GNA he, he or she used in his price analyst. So it's like, no, don't do it at, at the individual nominal basis. Do it as an overhaul picture and then understand the, the, the circumstances. I mean, a lot of these government cost estimates may not, you know, may, may assume, you know, like the location. Uh, you know, the work being done, it really matters. Like they might take a DC based model and use DC based prices. But Donna, I know you think the cost of living in Florida probably is a bit less than those up in DC. Yeah. So like, so you would think, so the indirect costs should be less. So if they're not doing that, you know, that's a big discrepancy that, you know, they're going to wonder about. I mean, they'll, they'll probably be happy, I guess in your case, but I, you know, or, If they're assuming that you're a Tampa-based company but doing the work in D.C., no, you don't – the people that you – the the overhead costs in D.C. are a lot different than than those down in Tampa. So, you know, if they make that kind of mistake one way or the other, that's going to have a big impact. And so once you get to negotiations, 
understand those assumptions. And so the interesting thing is, you know, I, I lecture at NDU and I frequently uh, just because of having some conversations through organizations that represent defense contractors, it is amazing to me how infrequently very mature and seasoned contracting officers are familiar with the term wrap rate. They don't think in terms of wrap rates. No. And, and it, yeah, and in my experience, both contracting officers and folks that sit on source selection committees are very interested, particularly in the GNA, because they want to know, you know, <laughs> How much are you know Don and Lauren paying themselves, or, or how much am I paying really to the ownership of the company versus to actually running it? And and so I'm surprised to hear you say that, and and comforted that the pricing analysts really do see that 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 trade off that at the end of the day it really is about wrap rate. Yes, it, it, it should be. And geez, you know, I think there's enough dis- disclosures about executive compensation these days. By the way, right? I know. <laughs> <laughs> So and so, what do they think about fee? What are sort of the rules of thumb about fee? Yeah, so fee is very interesting. Um, contracting officers are given what's called a, a fee determination worksheet. So for different types of cost elements, they should be assigning a level of risk and therefore a portion of the profit based on that risk. So fee is that's what fee is supposed to represent. If you're doing something that you know you're and I'll guess I'll put it in your example, Don, a little bit. Like you're just doing budget analysis, butts and seats. You're filling in extra people that the government is unable to fill. You know, that's you know, there's not much to it. Either you get it done or you don't get it done. Whereas if you're doing an R and D type program where you know the scope is a bit vague, uh, the outcome is not certain. Uh, Contracting officers are going to sign a lot more or allow for a lot more flexibility and profit slash fee because, well, you got to take on a lot more risk. You know, trying to find these people, a high degree of uh, difficulty in terms of background and, and scientific uh, know-how and then the, the, the materials that you need to buy are difficult to find. I mean, then there's could be a back order or there's a long lead items involved in the in, so there's so many different factors that, you know, contracting officers are supposed to take into account when determining what's the risk to, to issuing this contract. So so the more complex the, the contract requirements, the more difficult the requirements in general uh, or, or even security clearances. I know that's also an area that's that's uh, near and dear to your heart as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's a degree of difficulty, so to speak, in doing that that should be considered when developing that that fee determination. So, yeah, so there's a lot of flexibility. Uh, I mean, the only FAR requirement on that is, you know, for a fixed fee, you're, you know, you're not supposed to go over 10%. Uh, and then, you know, award fee contracts, you know, you can go as high as you want, theoretically. So, uh, lot, so lot if you have to bookend it, if yeah, with the range of what's acceptable, how oh would boy. you bookend the percentage? Oh, boy. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, and break it down if you want to, you know, the, the R&D market. The yeah, so R&D, yeah, exactly. So R&Ds, you know, 10 to 15 percent, no problem. But if you're doing, you know, staff augmentation type stuff, Five to seven percent is not unheard of. I mean, I know that's bare bones and a lot of people, especially when you start tiering, meaning you have one or more subcontractors under you, the government's not going to want to pay 
speed to to you, the prime, the sub, and then the a sub of the sub, you know, they're just not going to keep paying it down the line. So you need to find a way to say, hey, listen, I understand, uh, you know, you're just you're paying this tiered fee. I'm going to do something about it to make sure that you're paying a fair and reasonable price. You know, I, and, you know, I'm still getting paid for my management, and I'm taking primary responsibility. And so that might be, you know, effectively a much smaller fee yeah. directly, but then ultimately I'm going to give, you know, a fee that's commensurate with the risk being performed by those subcontractors and making sure that's managed down the line, down my supply chain such that I'm not passing through excessive fee. I can't tell you how much, you know, I've come back to the contracting officer base saying, just so you know, 30% of this, uh, <laughs> This this uh, this rate is is being That's paid fee. You may want to negotiate that lower. So <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. So let me let, let us um, close. And I want to thank you for your time because oh, this is uh, I think a great opportunity to get the benefit of of uh, the wisdom of someone who uh, frankly gets paid a lot <laughs> to share his wisdom. So thanks oh. for sharing this with our our listenership. Um, if you had I guess one thing to leave our listenership with, one bit of advice that that um, you think is sort of the center of gravity of what they need to think about when they're thinking about DCA compliance and pricing, what would it be? Do what you think is right and be equitable. Don't try to cheat the system. You're going to get paid. You know, the great thing about doing work with the government is when you submit an invoice, 99.9% of the time, you're going to get paid within 30 days. You cannot make that promise to a non, when you have a non-government customer. So as a result, do the right thing. They're going to do right by you as long as you're proposing prices that are fair and reasonable and you're not looking to subsidize a commercial part of your business or your, your personal yacht. (laughs) <laughs> as a result of what you're putting in your prices. So if you do what's right, do what's ethical, you know, within reason, I think you're, you're going to start yourself off to be a strong, well-performing government contractor. Thank you very much, Josh Shapiro. Oh, my pleasure, Dad. Donna. Yes, yes. Reach out anytime you want with questions. I love this. Uh, look out for many webinars. We're always putting them on. We have lots of free uh, educational tools on our website, govcon360.com. Go check it out. Uh, we, we, we think it's a great tool for, for any size government contractor. And so the, the webinars you put on, are those available to the public? Absolutely. Terrific. So it's Cone Resnick, C-O-H-N-R-E-Z-N-I-C-K.com. You got, got it. tools and, and webinars on there. Thanks again, Jeff. Oh, Bye-bye. my pleasure. <laughs>